0: In Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is uh, the video teaching series, Houses of Worship. And we're talking about looking at what the scripture says, the role of houses and homes uh, in the New Testament church, what place they had in ministry and how the early church used them and what significant things happened in houses and not in public gatherings. And uh, this is a curious one. Okay. In this lesson, we're going to look at a couple of instances where evangelism took place outside of a house, but they both resulted in ministry in a house. Uh, In both of the following contexts, the initial contact happened outside of the house But the ministry to the individuals Lydia and the Philippian jailer opened the door of evangelism to their whole house, to their whole household. Acts chapter sixteen verse fourteen says this, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, was worship, who which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord. Opened and w- that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me f- to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained them. So the ministry in her house happened after they were saved. After her, Lydia and her household were saved, the ministry happened in her house. The ministry happened in her house. So it, this is this is really critical because we've talked about both the day of Pentecost and Cornelius' household. The salvation took place inside the house. In whatever you would call the gathering or the the time of ministry in actually in the house. But here we got two situations, Lydia, and I'm about to read about the Philippian jailer. They were evangelized and saved outside of the house, but that opened up door of ministry to those within the house and those who would gather within the house. So that's uh, Lydia. Here is uh, the Philippian jailer Acts chapter 16, verse 27 and the, the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open. He drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and baptized, and was baptized he and all his straightway, and when he had brought them into his house he set meat before them and rejoiced and because uh, believing God with all of his house. So here it is again. The place of preaching was in the jail because God opened the doors for all the prisoners, but none of them left because of Paul and Silas praying and praising God in the middle of the night, an earthquake came, and the jailer, assuming that if the doors were open, everybody had fled, got ready to kill himself. But Paul Caught him in time and said, No, don't do that. We're all still here. And he obviously became very convicted. And there's, it doesn't give us the details. And there's a lot more detail in the conversation between the two than just him asking, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How did he even know they needed, he needed to be saved? Uh, So he had to be preached the gospel to, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thy house, thou shalt be saved, uh, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. So there was, had to be a lot more teaching there because how did he know that they all should be baptized? And they spake unto him the word of the Lord to all that were in his house, not physically in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes because they had been beaten, and he was baptized, he and all his house, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, which let you know that none of this had happened in the house to his house, his household, his family, or everybody connected to his house, but it didn't happen in his house. But when it finished, he brought them into his house. He said, meet before them and rejoice, believing God with all of his house, which implies again, Paul's pattern is that he would have abided there and continued to minister to the Philippian jailer. And we have this book called the book of Philippians that started someplace, started someplace. And it had to have started here. Both Lydia and the Philippian jailer had the gospel preached to them outside of their houses, not in a church building, but outside, outside of their house. But when, they were, but when they both believed, their faith opened the door to ministry for their whole households in their houses. Furthermore, Paul was invited to abide in both houses and continue to minister in those houses unto all who came there. Again, Paul often ministered in the same house in which he was abiding. That was his pattern. And I... Don't have a lesson on that, but I've got scriptures on that and it's there. You can look it up. He often did that. He often did that. As we will see in a later lesson in Rome, that's what he did. He had a house that he had rented. He was under house arrest. He wasn't in a dungeon, but they allowed him to have all kind of people come there in his house. So I wonder I wonder what the Lord is really trying to say to us through these scriptures. I wonder. What, what is he trying to say? What's he trying to say to us? What's he doing here? How much of our, how much of our, uh, uh, how much of our ministry is focused outside in the world and On houses and homes. Well, you know, we've done it. Others have done it. Churches put themselves under such a strain financially. Oh, it is a major, it's a major strain financially. We do it. Trying to pay for some facilities. When somebody invites you into their house, they're paying the the rent, they're paying the utilities, they're paying the insurance. Where's the strain? Where's the strain? Why should we live under such strain financially to minister to people by building edifices that cost millions and millions of dollars when biblically... It was just as effective to minister to them in their houses. Now, again, I've said it. I won't keep on saying it. It is in the Bible where the church gathered publicly. I'm all for what the Bible says. I'm all for that. But my question is for myself, and for everyone else, is what is the will of God when it comes to spending all this money to build these big monstrous buildings? When most of what goes on in those do not does not make people into disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't. You know, this is not really on the subject, but. I learned to recognize flow and it's here. Uh, I was so busy, I didn't pay enough attention when I had my two sons and they were babies. I guess I I just didn't pay attention, but with seven grandchildren, and they've all lived relatively close by, which is a great privilege. I know many don't have that privilege and I'm thankful for that. I've got to watch every one of them as babies. We've got to keep them as babies. And it's an amazing thing to watch one so young—four, five, six months old—want to drink, begin to try to feed itself. You, you you're drinking something, and they're reaching for it. And then they they get big enough to sit in a high chair, and they reach the place they don't want to be fed fed with a spoon anymore. They want you to put it on the on the tray in front of them. They want to be able to learn how to get to their mouth and eat it. And yeah, they make a mess. But what is it in that baby at that age that makes them want to learn to feed themselves so early? And yet there are people that are sitting on church pews every weekend that have been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years or longer. They don't have any desire to feed themselves. They don't have any desire to learn how to feed themselves out of the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. They don't have a desire to learn. They don't have a desire. They don't want that. What What is wrong? What is wrong that these spiritual babies do not want to learn to feed themselves what is wrong with that why is that why would that be the case why i'll tell you why it's not our gatherings is the problem it's not even our gatherings and church services are It's the fact that our ministry is whole focused on that. These people don't ever have to learn to eat for themselves because they not only don't have to feed themselves, they sure don't have to grow up and feed somebody else, which, of course, Paul said very clearly. In Ephesians chapter, or Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need for one to teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of Christ. You become... Uh, such as need of milk instead of meat what's he talking about and no he's not talking to preachers the book of hebrews wasn't written to preachers it was written to everybody and whoever paul's addressing in hebrews chapter 5 verse 12 he's addressing to the same people the entire book of hebrews is addressed to and according to paul everybody should be a teacher of the word. But we got people sitting on the Bible, they can't even, sitting on our seats that have been around for decades, can't even they can't even give you three verses to tell you where, that prove a person needs to speak in tongues as evidence of the Holy Ghost. They can't even tell you three verses to tell you that baptism is necessary for salvation. They can't give you three verses that tell you that it has to be in Jesus' name. They can't give you three verses that tell you It has to be by immersion. They can't give you three verses that say you have to have the baptism of the Holy Ghost to be saved. They can't give you three verses that prove that speaking in tongues is the evidence of of, of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They can't can't give you three verses to prove there's only one God. They can't even give you that. They don't even know that. They, They say they believe what we preach, but they don't know what we preach. It's never become theirs. And that's when The whole focus has become what goes on in this building. And I'm going to teach a whole lesson on that somewhere in this series. That our structure and concept produces, it produces passive Christians. Except here's the problem. Biblically, there's no such thing as a passive Christian. It was some cartoon I watched as a kid. My dad wasn't saved, and so we had a TV in our house back when nobody had TVs, right? So I don't remember what the cartoon was, but it was Deputy Dog. And Deputy Dog, when he got hungry, he would go to where his master was and go, I, 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 meaning feed me we have too many deputy dogs sitting on our pews they come expecting the pastor to perform with the latest masterpiece and they have no hunger for the word of god themselves well since the lord jesus christ is the logos made flesh the word made flesh and dwelt among us if i don't love the word i don't love jesus And how do good people that got the same Holy Ghost you and I have and been baptized in the same name we have and go sit in good church services like we do, how do they get from the zeal that they had when they first got saved to this passive shell of themselves that has no hunger for the Word of God, that only goes through prayer as a ritual a practice, some religious religious obligation? Why? because they're not challenged called to get out of that church body and get out in the field and work and wit a witness somebody someplace to somebody a preaching of the gospel a declaration of the gospel a proclamation of the gospel to somebody not a sermon but a proclamation of the gospel to somebody Not only is able to see those people saved, but it opens up houses, whole houses, and then whole oikos or households, everybody in that household, friends and neighbors, all become a part of that. And you get a Bible study going, and you can just keep doing that Bible study and keep adding people to that Bible study. And eventually you start teaching other stuff because now you've got a group together in that Bible study. Now, maybe there are some people that don't want strangers in their house. Fine, teach that family by themselves and then have them invite their friends, not strangers. Are they going to keep their friends out of their house? Huh? Are they going to do that? We going to keep their friends out of that house, really? Really? They're going to keep their friends out of the house? No. They're going to welcome their friends. So, we've got to begin to see the way the gospel will be spread dramatically. Is when we preach to individuals, wherever that individual may be, that person getting saved potentially opens the door to a whole house of people. Now, Typically, in most places, even now, even more in the Bible Belt than it used to be. How hard is it to get that house to come to church, that household to come to church? Isn't it a lot easier to take the gospel to them than it is to try to get them all to come to church to get saved? You get people saved, they're going to want to be a part of your body. Your local body, they're going to want to be a part of that local body of Christ. They're going to want that if they get saved. But the idea they have to come to where the body of Christ is meeting to get saved is not biblical. It's not biblical. So this whole series is not just about some kind of concept or principle of where the church meets it's all about ministry and concept of ministry. You know, we we have traditionally, even if, if we can get our people, our workers in our barn to participate, we issue shovels and wheelbarrows. And then they're supposed to go out into their neighborhoods and dig dirt, soil, and uh, pile it in their wheelbarrow. And then, then wheel it back to the church house, bring a guest with them, pile all that dirt in the middle of the floor and the preacher gets up in the pulpit and he scatters seed on that pile of dirt in the floor. And then everybody's got to go shovel all that back into their wheelbarrow and take it back to their communities and dump it back where it was <coughs> and hope it grows and hope it grows. Really? Really? That's biblical. That's in the Bible. That's how the apostles did it. Oh, it was a different day, brother. Right? Yeah, it was a different day, much harder day. I mean, you could—you're taking your life in your own hand. You witness somebody. You—you may—you may end up arrested. You may go to jail for witness somebody. And yet the church grew, and according to some historians, it—it it grew to over one tenth of the population of the known world became Christians by the end of the first century. And since the known world was the Roman world, that was approximately 250 million people in the Roman world because they were very meticulous census takers because that's how they supported everything they did by the taxes that they uh, charged those who were on their census rolls. They, 10% of 250 million, is 25 million people. Are there 25 million apostolic Christians in the whole world right now who I think I'd be really thrilled if there was five million why because we don't do what the early church did we got it all locked up inside a, a building it was called the cathedral edict it was called the cathedral edict ten years before approximately before the Council of Nicaea that took away our message of one God, which was the first time in the history of church there was anything officially said about a father and a son as two persons. The third person didn't get recognized until 383 A.D. at the Council of Trent, but at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. was the first time that there was a separate person of the son versus the father, a God, the father but 10 years before that the uh, constantine had was trying to unify the the two the split roman empire it was split between the east and the west and he was going to war and he had a vision or a dream he saw a cross and he heard the voice in this sign conquer and so he promised god that if he won this battle and could reunify the Roman Empire, that he would make uh, Christianity the state religion. And he did that. He won the battle. And he declared that everybody in the Roman government had to be Christians and that Christianity was now the state religion by edict. Not conversion, but by edict. This by a man that there is... some evidence that he never even got baptized in his entire lifetime. And the Council of Nicaea was called by Constantine in 325 AD. So an unbaptized unbeliever calls the church council together. So in 2015 approximately, when he had made this edict and all these uh, these government people had to convert from idolatry to Christianity to keep their jobs because of the emperor said so, uh after a while they came according to the story they came and complained to, Const- to constantine because all these beautiful temples we've got that we've worshiped in and all worshiped diana and all these other gods all these years are sitting empty and these christians they're 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 worshiping in the caves and the catacombs and they don't have any kind of beautiful edifices to worship in And from what I've read, it was called the cathedral edict. That is that churches could no longer meet in private and could no longer meet clandestinely, but they had to use these temples that had been used for idol worship by the edict of the emperor, emperor. And that changed the church right there. There's no evidence in the first 300 years or so of the church that any church anywhere in the world ever owned property uh, that they called a church. So it all changed. Now, again, Antioch, And I'm the Bishop of Antioch. Antioch owns property. Antioch owns buildings. So I'm not sitting here saying to you that we're all sinners and going to hell because we own buildings and we ought to sell them all or whatever. Now, people have said that. I say that. That's a lie. I've never said any such thing. I'd be a total hypocrite if I said that and then we keep our buildings. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying We need to be delivered from the effect of being confined to these structures. The effect that has on the world, the effect that that has on the lost. We need to be delivered from that. We do. So in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that the gospel would be delivered from the four walls of our building that we would do in these facilities what we're supposed to do, but not do anything else there except go from there to preach the gospel to every creature so that they have a chance to be saved. And every soul that gets saved is a new home. that's opened up as a place to teach a Bible study. And it should be our goal to teach a Bible study in every home in our church. And if people don't want to have what some would call a small group or a life group or whatever, if some people people don't want to have that in their home, okay, no problem. You don't want to have strangers in your house? Fine. Then have a Bible study in your house and invite your friends. Have a Bible study in your house and invite your friends. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the grace of God and the spirit of the fear of the Lord and the spirit of conviction come upon us. And may the the Lord of the harvest thrust us out into his harvest field and teach us that we can take care of his harvest in the homes of the harvest. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you.